I'm Peter Wall. And I'm Jennifer Carnegie. Welcome to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. On each episode, we'll be speaking to inspiring leaders about the ups and downs of their careers. As well as doing what we do best, using our years of leadership experience in both the military and commercial business to get leaders to the top of their game. You can listen to each new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So subscribe now to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations. Okay, let's get going. So uh, today, it's our great pleasure to welcome Graham Elliott, who is the Chief Executive Officer of a tremendous um, tech startup company in the insurance business called Azure. It was a great pleasure for Amicus to work with Azure back in 2017 when we um, first sort of rebooted the company, uh, when Jennifer came back from, um, from Jamaica. And uh, we're still in touch with Graham. And uh, he runs a fantastic organization that is revolutionizing the automation of the uh, insurance market and is going to tell us all about how he does that from a leadership perspective. So, Graham, hello. Uh, what a great pleasure it is to have you with us. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. And so tell us a little bit about uh, what drives you as the CEO and how you seek uh, to run the business from your um top of the shop position so so i think my main driver in setting up the business was um that i knew how things were done in the 20th century in insurance and i just don't believe they'll be done the same way in the 21st century and i you know when you get to my age it's really easy to set up a business that you know um in which case it would be 30 years old um, it's much harder to set up a brand new business that tries to reimagine things and think about things slightly differently. And and that drive has not left me um, in the five years that the business is going. And the more that we see of what's going on, the more we feel that we're, you know, at least um, playing with the wind at our backs. And um, and that's very helpful. Um, and and the the interesting thing is that we have a bunch of people from the insurance industry who are used to um, the way things were done who joined us. And that's what Amicus helped us with, the integration of that team and, and, the, and the bonding of the various personalities to get everybody to work together. And it's really interesting over five years to see how they've come on that journey and how they're now as passionate as I am about it. It's really gratifying. Well, we certainly enjoyed um, working with you in the early days when you in fact, got in touch with me in the middle of the night, having read a Sunday Times article that we had published on our behalf about some of the military tools that can be applied in commerce. And I was able to get off a plane a few days later and come and have breakfast with you in Finsbury Square, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it was a great pleasure to do all that work. And one of the things I recall was that you've essentially had to blend two very distinct working cultures into your business, which... Um, are almost 50% and trying to get that Venn diagram, 50% each and trying to get that Venn diagram to overlap. Would you talk a bit about the challenges of that? Yeah, sure. Well, first thing for from uh, getting to know Amicus was um, I read an article um, in the Sunday Times one weekend and thought, blimey, this is really good and uh, that you'd written. And I sent it to the executive team 
And the next week I read another article and thought, this is also very good, and then wrote you an email, sod it. I'm sending the executive team and got in touch with you. And we've been really delighted with the help that you've given us. And it's, it's helped make things a lot clearer for me. Um, and you're right, the, the primary challenge is if you're, if you're trying to create a new type of company, um, one of the things you've got is legacy versus, versus uh, the future. And, and when you've got a technology business that also has it one foot in, um, in, in legacy, um, you've got two completely different uh, cultures looking at each other. On the one hand, um, tech companies are used to uh, very self-directing teams. Who you report to isn't necessarily who sets your agenda. You um, are highly trusted. You get on and you do stuff um, and you work quickly and you work um, with multi-disciplinary um, uh, uh, teams to produce product. On the insurance side, it's incredibly command and control. And there's lots of reasons why it should be. The first is that it's a regulated industry. Um, so you have to do things a certain way. And the second thing is that is that you, if you're an underwriting, typically the, the authority that you get to underwrite risks cascades from the top. So the head person has the most authority and the most junior person has the least authority. And that command and control coming all the way down um, um, can, in a mature industry, completely cut against innovation and trust. And so... When you're trying to put two teams together like that, um, the challenges you face are massively cultural because the in the underwriting business, your underwriters are used to being in control. It is an underwriting business. And the tech team are the people who work in a basement and make your PC work. But if you're combining insurance and technology together, you have to give them equal, um, equal billing and you have to make each side see that the others is important. And then you have to let the trade-offs between I want this and this and this, and you can only have this and this and this because it's going to take too long. Those trade-offs have to happen at the right level without destroying the company because there's a lot of dynamic tension in that. And so what you discover when you put it together is the leadership completely goes into its own camp and says, well, this is the way we're going to do it from my perspective. And the other side goes, this is the way we do it from my perspective. And, and that's a hugely destructive um, situation and your share price goes down, which is not the objective that you've got as a small business. And so it starts with a leadership team and you've got to convince them to move around the table and understand each other's viewpoint. And then you've got to get them out of the room and let them empower their juniors to get on with things. And then you've got a business that can really move at pace. So it's a real challenge. And I believe in the future, in the past, sorry, there were there were technology companies and there were insurance companies. In the future, there will just be technology-enabled insurance companies, and there won't be a distinction. There will be companies supplying technology, but the insurance company's got to get technology um, to be to be able to survive. And 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 so, um, if you if you accept that's the way of the future, this is a journey you have to go on, but you have to be prepared for it to be a rocky journey. It's not easy to leave it. Thanks very much, Graham. It's absolutely fascinating. If you were to take yourself out of the CEO position in terms of um, bringing these two cultures together and you were to recruit a CEO into that role, what qualities would you be looking for? Um, I'd look for somebody who's um, fundamentally optimistic and fundamentally trusts people because, because the thing that I think is in a command and control organization, 
Um, fear is very often the default method of controlling people and getting people to do what you want. And and fear of being found out creates that, you know, um, slightly corrosive uh, blame culture that you can get. And if you're going to do this, you've got to lead by example. So you absolutely have to trust people and you can't go bashing them and you have to democratize your processes. And so that isn't, that that's not... It's an unusual thing because typically at the top of established businesses, you've got very high alpha males and females as well, but more males than females. Um, and and, it, and it, it's very command and control. And it's really hard. If you don't do this right from the top, it doesn't work. So, so the people you want are, are people who are prepared to trust, who are prepared to be seen to be vulnerable, prepared to fail themselves and admit it, and who want to get it right, not be right. If you can solve that, I think you've got a chance. If you put a command and control person in at the top or a micromanager, you're dead. It ain't going to work. You just won't hire the talent. You'll get all the insurance talent you want because they're used to it, and you won't hire the tech talent. And it's all about talent. So you were talking earlier on about these two cultures, and you've had now quite a long time to sort of blend the cultures together is that other people adapting and another is the culture changing or are they just getting better at accommodating each other's cultures um probably a bit of both number one um it's it, th- this is a journey without an end position so you're never ever going to wake up one day and go i've done it because you just can't do that and you've got different person you've got not only training and history but personalities to blend into that and 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 i do think that that along the way people try to camouflage their true belief and just do it because they know i'm not going away um but, but but i think but i think the core thing about an organization is it's got to have authenticity and if you've got an authentic business then the camouflaging behavior gets exposed. If you don't have an authentic business, if you're paying lip service to whatever it is, compliance, to brand, to mission, to the moral with a non, in the non-pejorative sense of the word, the way you run the business, if you pay lip service, people find you out. And people are very good at that because of all the interactions they have with social media, they have millions of interactions and they're very good at sniffing out lack of authenticity and better than they were in my uh, growing up years and so if you're authentic you can expose the bits where people aren't being authentic more easily if you're an organization that's run on bs then you're not you're going to get fooled by people and of course people are going to play politics but you just have to keep calling them on it and when you catch it you say i don't like that and what you discover i read back over my feedback to people over the years, and I can see that they've moved because of the way my feedback's changed. And I'm not declaring victory, it's a work in progress, and I'm um, one goal down, and it's half time, and I'm gonna start playing into the wind up the slope. So so it's not easy, and it doesn't get any easier, but I think it people do move, and they move further than they realize. You've got some very strong characters in your team. Is that a help or a hindrance? It's it, it's a massive enabler. You 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 you, you want to go into this with the best people you can find, 
and then try and coach them into the way you want to behave. It's no good going in with a B team who all agree with everything you say. And and it's it, having such a, you know, my chairman refers to our culture as a teddy bear's picnic because we we when we have our executive meetings, I get the hell beaten out of me by everybody. But that's okay. I don't beat the hell out of anybody. I don't, I don't publicly shame, I don't blame. But I believe that if you have the debate and you're prepared to countenance the debate and you take people on one side if they get out of hand and they say the wrong thing and you say, look, I really don't think you should be talking like that. Um, over time, you can, you, you can use that talent to great effect. If you go in with people who just say, oh, I'll do what he says, either because I'm scary or because they're just too frightened to, to tell me, um, I think you're going to be, you know, at a, at, a, at a competitive disadvantage in this. So you want strong characters, and then your skill is how to mould them. I mean, uh, you know, think of the job, and, and you both know this from things you've done in your careers. You're the conductor of an orchestra. You can't play every instrument. Um, and you, it, you don't make beautiful music by shaming the violins in front of the cellos. Um, but you can coach. You can say, listen, it's really good. It sounds fantastic. I just want to get it a little bit tighter. There's a bit of tuning going on in the woodwind. We'd love just to get that, just a bit flat at the moment. And you you get people to want collectively to suppress their own egos in pursuit of the corporate good. That is a really difficult thing to do. And you can't do it with fear and you can't beat people into it. They've got to want to do it. So we know you to be a ferociously optimistic, energetic, positive person. But there must be days where you think, wow, this is just tough. This is hard. So what keeps you going through days where you think this is not going according to plan and is it all worth it? I mean, it's a good question. My, my core motivation isn't money. And my core motivation is to feel that I've made some of a contribution. Not a, I don't want to be famous or anything else. I just want to feel I did more than I took away from the world. And, and, and so if you're motivated by that kind of insecurity, um, you're going to have moments when you feel low about what you're doing. And it can be lonely. Um, but, but, but I think um, I've never given up on anything. And I don't think that's a great trait in somebody. And if you want to lead, we've got 80 people in the company. And if I want to lead 80 people, I owe it to them to be strong. And I owe it to them to admit when it's difficult. But I also owe it to them to show them the future. This is optimism is the thing that makes people start businesses and self-belief. And so, and so the low moments just go with it because I'm human and I have those moments. But I, I've got a core belief that we're doing something really interesting and really important. And the more people say to me, you know, no, I don't believe you, or I don't get it, or I don't understand it, the more I'm saying, well, I'll, I'll raise you, I'll see you. And, and um, anybody who's played sports knows this. You, if you lose and you give up, shame on you. Play to the damn whistle and play to win even if you're losing. So you, with your senior team, when you're thinking about, or when you recruited your senior team, what qualities were you looking for in them? Were you, were you looking for this kind of optimism and this kind of relentless almost drive? Some of the team I've worked with for years and, and, and known for years. And I think when you recruit a team, it's always better to start 
with known quantities, especially in a startup, because everybody interviews well, everybody's got good CVs, everybody's got good references. And it's really hard sometimes to puncture the carapace of that and get into the real person underneath. And one way of doing it is to hire people whose weaknesses you know as well as strengths. And also, you've got to know your own weaknesses. And I, I know where I'm really bad. I know where I'm not so bad, but I know where I'm really bad. And so part of my recruitment is, is to make up for my weaknesses. I have, I'm not a complete finisher. I get bored really easily. And, and once I've had the idea and worked it all out, I want to move on and do something else. So I need somebody who um, is stressed if they don't complete it and finish it. So my tool shed is a mess with the last job I did with the tools thrown on the workbench. The person I want to run things behind me is somebody whose tool shed has got all their tools hung up neatly, preferably with shapes drawn around them where they belong. And so you need personalities. And, and then, so if you, but if you start with known quantities, the, the thing that you've got that's really useful is you don't waste time because time is, 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 is very destructive of businesses. If you hire the wrong person to a senior role, and then after nine months, you work out they're no good. You then got six months of notice period for them. And you've then got to find somebody else. And that'll take you six months. And they may be the wrong person. And you've gone two years and you still haven't got the right person in the role. So a little bit, it is finding people who are a known quantity gives as a shortcut. It's, a, it's an accelerant for a startup. Um, and then the other bit is... I'm a belie great believer in serendipity. I shouldn't be, but the people that find you and come to you rather than you reaching for them are, are always really interesting to me because I, I, I don't like um, a, a fundamental instinct that I've got to go and find somebody because it means if I've got to find somebody, I will. I've got to get married. means I'll go and find a wife. I've, I want to be with the person I love is not the same thing. And you stand a better chance of being happier if you do that than if you say, I've got to be married. So I've got to go and find somebody. You can go and find somebody, but it won't make you, it won't make you happy. So, so serendipity is really important. And some of the best hires we've got, people have found their way to us and have just made it impossible not to hire them. And that's really cool. You talked about time and what you said about that's very, very interesting, not just in the sort of practical issue of, hires and the amount of time you can waste and the energy you can waste if you get that wrong and I think you know it's one of the hardest things that anybody does is try and build a strong team that's going to be consistent under pressure and so on but if you took if you look at you know time from a um a more general perspective and um, how do you spend yours um how do you balance between um inside the business where you're very visible you're very well known to all of your people that's part of the passion of the business is driven by your relationships with those individuals versus the up and out stuff, managing other stakeholders, looking for opportunities. And how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you make your decisions about time? And are you um, satisfied with the way that goes or do you find it hard? I'm, I'm hopeless at time management because I don't plan. Um, so, so, but I have a rule, which is, as soon as something is going into BAU, I want to be on to the next project to keep driving the business forward. Um, and, and, that, and that means that, that if, you, if you let the process um, become more important than the outcome, 
then I think you're going to miss something. If the only thing you can do is write a list down and do everything on the list, um, that is, that is, it's just not my character. And I think it, it's a process that then rules what you do. Whereas what I like to do is to try and think of how can I drive things forward? How can I make a real change? How can I make a difference? And dive back into BAU and to the detail when I need to, but not be in the detail all the time. So, so my job is to make myself redundant from the organization as it is. And that's the hardest thing to coach your leadership team on. The organization only grows if everybody makes themselves redundant from their job now so they can do the next job. And, that, and that's very hard because people like to cling on to what they've got because it's what they know. Um, in terms of time management, you know, it's a, it, I, I, I'm hopeless at it. I spend at least half my day searching through old, trying to find old emails. So, you know, I'm not a poster child for any of that. And I'm very instinctive about it. But I know when I want to do something and I go after it. And, 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 and that's it. That drives the business forward. So I bet you a lot of people who'll be listening to this, and I hope some people will, because I think your um, advice on this is invaluable, um, will experience the same uh, challenges. And, and, you know, my recollections from, you know, when I was involved at the top of the army is that, you know, you basically got legacy issues got, you've got to atone for, which in the case of the British army go back decades or centuries. You've got the tyranny of the present, which um, can be very satisfying, but it's always, there's always the regular things you have to deal with, um, you know, um, repeatedly, such as budget issues and personnel issues and, um, you know, dealing with the in-place political class, whatever it might be. And um, if you're not thinking about the future as the sort of third leg of the school stool and arguably the most important one, then nobody else is going to be. Yeah. And so you've got these three time frames in which you're operating daily. And I, I used to find it incredibly difficult to balance um, the time between those things. Some of them are not optional. It's the future always gives when the present and the past are biting you. Right. And uh, we used to sort of do a three monthly review of how we'd done in the previous quarter um, to try and make ourselves better for the next quarter, if you like. And um, very difficult to do. I love I love atonement and tyranny. I shall use those. That's fantastic. I, I, have, a, I have an organisational theory that, that I, I sort of developed, which is that some people can only think in certain time frames. So there are people who genuinely are utterly tactical in their thinking. It's like I get through today or I get through the week or I get through the month or I get through the year. And, and... And as you move up an organization, the need of the executives to think in expanded timeframes goes up. So by the time you get to the CEO, if I'm not thinking in five to seven year time horizons, I'm not doing my job because I'm not taking the ship where it needs to go. And, and the danger in an organization is somebody's really good at a tactical job, like they're in sales and they meet their yearly targets. So you go, they're brilliant. So I'm gonna put them to head of sales. And what they do, if they can't expand their time scale of thinking, what they effectively do is crush everything below them into their time frame. So as you promote those people, the business becomes increasingly tactical, not strategic. And that is, I think it's a much misunderstood um, thing about organizational. I'm sure somebody understands it and knows it well. I'm sure you guys do, but I, don't, I haven't really heard anybody talk about that. But I think it's really important. If you put somebody... 
into my job or one of our team's job, leadership job, who's not thinking in five-year horizons or three-year horizons, the organization is going to die and it'll disappear into the tyranny of the present and atoning for the past. And do you think that ability to think longer term, to look into the future, is that something that you naturally have or is that something that you can learn? When you look at your your team and the people that you've worked with in the past, can you see the, the people that, that would naturally look to the future? I think there is I think, you know, this is nature versus nurture. There are people who've innately got it, and there are people who will never ever get it. And there are people who can learn it. I think if you're hungry enough, you can learn anything. But if you're not hungry, you won't learn it. So, so you want hungry people who want to learn, then you need to coach them. Don't shut this down. Don't become all about next quarter. Open your eyes up. Where's this going? What's the future going to look like? And, it's, and the difficulty of that is you don't know. You're making a best guess. And so you're at risk. And you're at risk of being wrong. And not everybody likes taking risk. So tactical people don't like taking risk. So it's all about vulnerability. So how do you balance that potentially if you've got private equity investors that are looking for a return in three years' time? How do you balance those kind of tensions? So so what you, you've got to choose your partner carefully, I think. Um, we don't have PE involved in us at the moment, but we probably will do at some point. Um, and you've got to view it as a prenup at the start because you're going into a relationship where you know you're going to be divorcing in five years time because they're going to sell you to somebody else and so you've got to think about the end in the beginning and that's really difficult to do and it's a bit shocking actually you don't typically find your life partner and go let's sign a prenup here because i think we might be splitting up in five years time that's not a great way to go about a relationship but you have to be upfront about it and and the difficulty you're going to have is they've got some natural incentive to leave something on the table because the next person coming along wants something. And you, you're going to be in conflict. You're going to be driving EBITDA. And because of your five to seven year vision, you're going to want to drive investment. And those two just are very hard to put together. And so, so you've got to get a balance right. You're not going to get all investment, but you're not going to get all EBITDA either. You'll kill the business. But if you're aware of it, and you are up front with it, I think you've got a chance. That's such an excellent explanation, which um, will be relevant to loads and loads of people trying to trying to deal with these dilemmas, these contrasting poles, if you like. Um, we're getting quite close to um, the end stops here. You talked about being a um, compulsive optimist. And no will nobody will deny that the last year or so for across the globe and particularly in UK with Brexit issues and a particularly bad dose of of COVID and a hard a hard hit on the economy. Um, partly it's government's own volition, and I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, but we are in a different place from where we thought we would be a year ago. Um, pessimism is rife. So how do you maintain your uh, compulsive optimism, and what are the things you're pessimistic about, if any? Um, so, 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 the the way to maintain optimism is when you get setbacks, you must think of them as speed bumps, not dead ends. Firstly, and you mustn't fret over the things you can't control. 
you've got to say, well, I'm going to deal with that. I've been, this has come at me, it's not my fault, and I'm going to deal with it. And then you just think, I'm not going to let that, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to let, I'm going to work a way around it. And it's a, and, and I'm, and I'm such a believer in human ingenuity because the evidence is millennia old um, that humans are ingenious and find ways of coping with things. And also, I'm not a believer in the end of the world. So I don't think I confuse my own mortality with the end of the world, which I think people of a more psychopathic tendency might do. And so they get very down about their own death and then they get down about the world because of their own death. And I think you've got to, I think you've just got to think, I've got a limited time on the earth and I'm going to damn well make a difference. So it's a really weirdly morbid thing, but I read the obituaries every day in the Times. And and it's the first thing I read in the paper. And it it, it it's a bit odd, but it's completely inspiring. And I think myself, all these people have done these amazing things. I'm only going to do a fraction of these things, but my God, if somebody could say something nice about me, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, all all you have in in the world, the only stain you leave on the earth is how you treat other people. And you can lighten or darken it. It's your choice. It's really difficult for people at the moment, and it's, and it's tragic what's happening. But the world will move on from it and get over it and sort it out. And life goes on. And you just have to remember that. And you just have to deal with what you can and not fret about the things you can't cope with. And, and that's really... Well, it's certainly the job. It's the job of us as leaders to make that happen. Yeah. And, and you know, so we've got to pick ourselves up and drive on because not everyone's going to do that. But if enough people do it, things will come right at some point. Yeah. And as you say, a lot of the less fortunate people who've been hardest hit by these events uh, really need that sort of leadership to give them a sense of confidence and purpose. And that applies whether you're in a wonderful business like yours or whether it's, you know, it's, it's the people who are sitting near you on the bus or whatever, yeah, going, right, going, going about their normal business. But, it, um, but isn't it true that, that the fundamental thing that people want more than money, more than anything else, they want to feel they matter. It's a, just a, yeah. you know, you could argue, not that I would, but you could argue that religion is just the need of humans to matter. And, yeah. and, and so leadership should give people a, a feeling that they matter. And if you do that, they'll go through walls for you. And if you don't do that, they'll hate you. And I don't want to be hated. <laughs> so I've, 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 I've got to ask this question because I've often been criticised for emphasising optimism too much. And there are some people who recognize that as leaders they have to be positive but they also think it's their duty to be skeptical so that they can um, spot things that might go wrong and deal with them up front uh, remember we were doing some work for one of the formula one racing teams a few years ago a uh, very successful one and uh, they they were very very scathing about this idea that everyone has a duty to be optimistic because they are, you know, they're dealing with fractions of a um, of a second and very tiny tolerances, and they feel that that sort of scepticism is essential to being able to operate in that competitive an environment. What do you say to that? Well, you 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 just because you've drunk the Kool Aid doesn't mean you can't be um, a realist as well, and 
So I would say that you, to run a business where you've got people's lives that you're responsible for or run a, a you know, a, a, something like the British Army where you're responsible for people's lives, you, you've got to um, always hope for the best and you've got to plan for the worst. So that's why you need diversity in your team. If, if you're all a bunch of Kool-Aid drinkers like me, it would be a disaster. If you're a bunch of Eeyores, like our financial director, it would also be a disaster because they'd never do anything. And, and so the combination, that's the diversity in the team that you need. You don't want everybody looking at the same view out of the same window and coming to the same conclusion. And, and what you've got to do is get that debate going and then you'll get to it. But, but, but your job as the leader, the ultimate leader is, is it's about the future. It's about hope. And you all matter. And it doesn't matter whether your view is different from mine. I'm going to listen to it and we're going to debate it. Graham, absolutely. It's always a pleasure talking with you. It's always insightful. I always learn something and um, and think about things ever so slightly in a different way. Um, when I've had a conversation with you, it was absolutely lovely to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Very best wishes for your plans to scale um, Azure Underwriting, and we hope it goes from strength to strength. Thank you so much. Thanks very much indeed. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can find each new episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. At Amicus, our bread and butter is helping leaders create consistent results by bringing out the best in their people. If you need support with anything we talked about on this episode, you can find out more about us at amicuslimited.com. This podcast has been done in conjunction with Inkblot Creative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.